tocar. My name is Annie Wilkes. I come on, ma'am. The blizzard was too strong. I couldn't risk trying to get you there. Oh, Paul, I've read everything of yours. The misery novels. I know them all by heart. I noticed in your case there is a new Paul Sheldon book. And... You want to read? You dirty bird. How could you? Misery Chastain cannot be dead. Yeah, murderer! You're going to write a new novel. Your greatest achievement ever. Misery's Return. Misery's Return? Book's almost finished. Your legs are getting better. You'll never know the fear of losing someone like you. If you're someone like me. Last night it came so clear. I realize you just need more time. Eventually you'll come to accept the idea of being here. The operation was called hobbling. Annie, whatever you think, I'm not doing it. one of the best King adaptations out there as far as movies go. And I think it has a lot of interesting things to say regarding the creator and fan relationship um, as it was, you know, back before the internet. And if you look at uh, the way that relationship has changed with social media and the internet now. Um, also, it's, it's just a great, tense, wonderful adaptation, great acting, um, you know, all the right ingredients to just make a really good movie. Hello, and welcome back to Scream Addicts. I'm Jinx, your host, and that was Blue Gilland talking about Rob Reiner's 1990 Stephen King adaptation, Misery. Mr. Gillen has written for a variety of websites and magazines, including Fearnet, Dark Discoveries, Dark Scribe Magazine, and Shroud Magazine. He currently serves as the managing editor of Cemetery Dance Magazine and Cemetery Dance Online. Mr. Gillen, thanks so much for being on the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Now, I have to ask, much as I do at the beginning of any show, out of any horror film you might have chosen to discuss at length, why go with Star Wars The Last Jedi? <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm I kidding. Guess a lot of people, <laughs> I guess a lot of people do consider that a horror movie from what I hear. But <laughs> No, 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 I, apologies. But, I'm, uh, you know, given your intro, I'm fairly certain we might be able to bring up that movie again at a later point in our discussion. But uh, I'm sorry. Definitely, but out of, definitely. Out of any horror movie, why, uh, why go with Misery? Well, you know, um, considering the time of year it is and, and everything that's been going on, um, one of my probably if I had to say my all-time favorite horror movie, it would be Halloween. Um, but that movie and that franchise is getting so much attention and so much love these days. I tried to think of something that maybe you know people weren't talking a lot about right now. And Misery just kept coming back into my mind because, um, like I said, I think it's just really interesting when you look at the way the relationship between fans and creators has changed over the years. And you look at uh, a movie like Misery that is kind of the worst case scenario of that relationship. Um, I just thought it was an interesting one to talk about with things that have gone on, um, you know, over the past few years. I, I agree entirely. And, you know, it's funny that you mentioned that the movie isn't really being talked about. And it occurred to me, rewatching it for this chat, you know, the the movie is fantastic. I, I remember seeing it first as a kid, and I've revisited it from 
time to time throughout the years, and I've always loved it. So I'm not sure why I should have been surprised when, you know, I rewatched the film and, you know, I found that it still holds up, you know, 100%. And it doesn't feel like it's really aged a day. And I honestly think the film is pretty much perfect and it's a damn classic. So what do you think it is that this is a movie that's been somewhat forgotten over the years? Or am I wrong for thinking that? Well, no, I, I think you're right. You know, it's not one that I had um, watched. Uh, it's not one that I pick up and watch, rewatch very often. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, I watched it just the other night um, to kind of refresh in my memory for the for our talk. And um, it was the Screen Factory release from a year or so ago and uh, was still in the plastic. I had got it when it first came out, and I'd never even gotten around to opening it and watching it. And, you know, I don't know if it's because it's not a flashy movie. I don't know if it's because it's not a franchise-ready movie, but it is one that I think, you know, when when people talk about great adaptations of Stephen King, you hear about um, Stand By Me. You hear about, um, I think you should hear more about The Green Mile, too. But um, you hear about Shawshank Redemption. But this one doesn't come up very often. And then when you mention it, people go, oh, yeah, that's, that's that is a great movie. But uh, I don't know if it's just because it's it's more of a self-contained and and there's not a lot of uh, special effects. There's not just a lot of not a lot of flashiness to it. But uh, but yeah, I, I think it's one that definitely deserves more attention than it gets. Yeah, and you know, it's not even spoken of as often as say something like uh, Kubrick's The Shining, which is a movie that uh, you know I I mean I adore the movie. I think it's a great film, but it is. I think anybody could admit, even if they love the movie or not, that it's a fairly bad adaptation of King's novel. Whereas, you know, Misery is a pretty damn good film, a great film. And, you know, it is, for the most part, pretty faithful to King, too. When, you know, in an age where uh, we had gotten a lot of adaptations that were either not that faithful or not that great. And, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, much as you've mentioned already, it's crazier to think that, you know, this movie that perhaps isn't getting as much attention as it deserves and has been kind of forgotten. You know, now more than ever, the film is super relevant, you know, with its look at right. toxic and, uh, you know, entitled fandom. And, you know, now I'm not certain what the uh, literary scene looked like back in the 80s, and I'm certain there have always been crazy fans, sure. But um, it, does it not feel like the world has far more Annie Wilkes in it now than it did three decades ago? Or do you think it's just technology and social media have you know, made us more aware now that, you know, we've always had that amount of Annie Wilkes. I I think we've always had them. um, But I think that, that uh, I think that technology and social media allows them to feed off of each other now in a way that you couldn't do that before. And um, I think that's why it feels like this is a new thing, but I'm sure if you go back and ask, actors and writers and and directors creative people who have been in the public eye you know years and years ago was this kind of thing going on i'm sure they all have horror stories to tell but the the thing is now not only do you do they have this venue talking about the the annie wilkes type fans have this venue to reach out to their creators and to reach out to each other but a 24-hour news cycle means that anything out of the ordinary that happens, we hear about it instantly. And that's not something that we had as much as 20 or 30 years ago either. 
Sure. And, you know, I but I wonder if it is only technology and only social media and the fact that people can now engage in that way and sort of, uh, you know, work each other up into, you know, a frenzy as opposed <laughs> to just themselves. You know what? I mean, you know, I'm on Twitter. When I see a film I dislike mm-hmm. or a picture from an upcoming movie that looks a little dodgy, uh, this is probably going to date this conversation. I'm not certain when this podcast is going to go up yet. But yesterday they released a photo of Bane from uh, uh, the next season yeah. of Gotham. And, you know, I, mm-hmm. I got to admit, as soon as I saw it, I was like, oh, my God, you know. And right. I probably <laughs> I, I can't swear to it, but I think I probably fired off a snarky tweet about it. You know, I'll talk about it. But, you know, and hell, I went a little nuts when that um, – Jared Leto Joker picture went up. I'll admit it. You know, I still think he looked dumb as hell in that movie, but whatever. Uh, and, you know, I, <laughs> I tweeted my displeasure to my heart's content. But at the same time, like, I look at how fans, and please picture quotes around that word, react to certain bigger franchises these days. And it's a tad frightening. You know, I mentioned Star Wars earlier. And, I mean, mm-hmm. just yikes, man. I mean, when you're constantly... Yeah harassing a film's director or threatening him or (laughs) raising money to remake the film. You know, at that point, I think fandom crosses a line and not not merely crosses it, races over it, you know, dives over it, runs far beyond the line. And um, (laughs) how, how is it that we got to that point where that seems acceptable behavior to not, you know, not just one person, not just a few people, a few dozen people even, but numerous folks who feel whatever wrong they feel has been done to them personally, you know, they, they need to try oh, and to actively avenge themselves for it, just for whatever certain creative choices went into making a movie or a book or a comic or whatever. And as I'm saying all this, I'm imagining poor Ryan Johnson getting his ankles broken by a crazy Star Wars fan. <laughs> yes. Well, and I think I think you, you, you said the word personally, and I think that is a difference, you know, that people take these things so personally – and if if a creative decision is made that they don't like, um, they they take it as a personal attack on them rather than understanding that you know people have different ideas and those ideas lead them down different paths and and lead them to make creative decisions. And it's not like I'm going to do this to anger this part of the fandom because no major studio film wants to anger and and you know, isolate part of its audience, they're trying to sometimes too hard to please everybody. And so it just, it, it, it floors me that people take things so personally. And, you know, when you, when you go back to the movie misery, that's what Annie did when, when, uh, Paul had, uh, killed off her favorite character. She took that personally and she turned that into, you know, a personal attack on him. And I, yeah, I'm like you, I, you know, it's easy to picture, um, picture some of these directors who are, are getting harassed off of social media. It, you, you, you shudder to think what would happen if, if some of these people met that creator in person, how far would they take it? I mean, one wonders now, like how, you know, how dangerous it must feel for certain creative types to show up at a convention or, you know, a Mm -hmm. comic con or something like that and share space with people who, you know, I mean, a certain percentage of the audience might hate them, you know, and out of that percentage, is there the possibility then that, you know, there's a smaller percentage that would actually do them physical harm, you know, because they've so convinced themselves that their anger is, you know, 
righteous and that they 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 deserve uh they deserve blood for it i mean it's it seems i mean borderline surreal to have this conversation in a way to actually say these things out loud and yet you know there mm-hmm. this is a thing that exists there are genuinely i hesitate to say crazy people because i don't think every fan out there who has bitched and moaned about star wars is crazy it's not that but it's at a certain point, like, again, just crossing that line, like, I, it moves beyond reasonable behavior for me. And I, right. I, I, again, you know, it's, to me, it's hard to imagine that that amount of people existed, you know, at a certain point. For the reason that you mentioned, I, I think you nailed it when you said that, um, you know, social media has allowed them to sort of interact with one another. I mean, it's become mm-hmm. instead of one angry person writing a letter and venting and getting it out of their system. And then perhaps maybe possibly if they're even remotely sane, being able to move on with their lives, you know, now when they shoot a tweet out, somebody else sees it. Somebody else comments on that. Maybe they find brothers in right. arms and maybe mm-hmm. they just continually work themselves up into a mob at that point. And it's, Again, to me, that is just frightening. I, I imagine, you know, if there were a Misery remake today, I mean, I, I almost imagine <laughs> a, a small army of Annie Wilkes as opposed to just the one. Right. You know? Yeah. And, you know, I think um, I, I like to think that as many people speak out so angrily and, and, and in such, you know, ugly ways on social media that they still would not act on the things they say. I, I think there's still that that illusion of being anonymous and I can say these things and nobody's going to really call my bluff. And and if they were to come face-to-face with some of the people that, you know, they have said ugly things about or made threats even against, if they were to come face-to-face with that person, would they actually go through with it? I think the majority, the large majority, the answer would be no. But who can tell? You know, it, that's what's scary about it is how do you pick out the the? It only takes one who would act on that to to really do some damage, and how do you know which one it is? Very true, and but you know, even then, like if if we can pick out the people who, you know, beyond just voicing their displeasure with the movie, the ones who really harass people online, uh, you know, the ones who've gone after Ryan Johnson and, you know, various other mm-hmm. people who were in that last Star Wars movie. Kelly, hey, Kelly Tran. Kelly Tran, when they uh, ran her know. off social media. Um, right. You know, and I hate to keep going back to Star Wars, but I mean, that's probably the biggest touch that we have here for the conversation that we're having so far as a work that, you know, uh, uh, sort of brought about that sort of crazy fan behavior. But at the same time, you know, even those fans who operate at that level, even if they're not going to do something physical, even if they're not going to send a bomb to one of these creatives residences or, you know, try and attack them at a convention or something, even still, we couldn't say that their behavior at that point is harmless because they are running people on Twitter. They are harassing people. They are, you know, they are doing really ugly things, even if they're not in contact with people, you know, physical contact with the, uh, the people that they're harassing. And it just, it blows my mind that, that's a thing. And it makes me feel bad for, you know, God forbid, like, um, you know, voicing an honest opinion on Twitter, you know, whenever I do take to Twitter right. and I want to, uh, say, you know, I really dislike this movie. I thought that was a really dumb choice. I hated this. You know, I, I, I would never personally say tag a director of a movie 
uh, that I, right. you know, I would never tag an yeah. actress and say, I thought you were terrible in this or an actor or, uh, you know, tag a writer whose script I thought was bad. Like I, you know, at, at a certain point, it's just a matter of manners, I think. But, um, but, it, but it still feels weird in this day and time to, to see any of that, you know, the, the crazier side of fandom and then tweet anything negative at that point, even if you're just being honest. And I kind of understand, you know, it, it exasperates me as well, but it almost seems like there is now a sort of faction of fandom that only wants to see the positive, that can only hear the positive, that can only tweet positive right. things, and they get furious if you dare to yeah. anything negative, anything at all. It is the complete polar opposite of the people we were talking about a moment ago. And that sort of... You know, that's not great either. You know, we have to be honest no. about things that we dislike. We, there, there has to be criticism. There has to be, you know, honest reviews. Uh, we, you know, we, we shouldn't. Oh, I don't want us to become as a, uh, a collective group on Twitter, you know, film Twitter, as it were, or, uh, you know, uh, literary Twitter. Is, is that a thing? Uh, I don't know. But, you know, I, 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 I <laughs> don't is. want us to be living in the world that Demolition Man showed us either, you know? Um, right. Yeah. And, you know, that's that's what's sad about all this is there are people who are able to communicate a criticism in a way that is constructive. You know, uh, this didn't work for me, but, you know, here's what maybe here's what I would have done. But, you know, OK, we'll see what what this person, this director, this actor does next, as opposed to. I don't like this one thing and I, I don't think you should ever have a job again. I mean that's crazy. I mean I am I am as big a Stephen King fan as there is, but there are books that I read once and didn't they didn't work for me and I won't read again. If I had stopped there and campaigned to you know because I didn't like one book, campaigned for his career to end, look what would have missed out on. I mean I just don't. I, that's a mindset that is very difficult to understand. But you're right; it's having a negative effect on people who want to have an open conversation and say, "Here's what I thought was good. Here's what I thought was bad. Um, I look forward to seeing what you do next." That that hardly happens anymore, and that's that's scary because I think a lot of creators will say, "You know, um, constructive criticism helps me get better." And hearing from people what worked for them and what didn't work for them helps me get better. And if you take that away and everybody's just saying everything's great or everything's terrible, that's not good. <laughs> no, and, and plus, like, what what kind of fan could you call yourself? You know, be it a Star Wars fan, a Stephen King fan, a fan of anything, really. Mm -hmm. What kind of fan do you think you are when, you know it's one strike and you're out when it's, uh, right. you know, but what have you done for me lately? You know, when, uh, you know, it, to, to marry it back to the movie that we're talking about, you know, Annie Wilkes, you know, Paul Sheldon gave her a library full of books that she absolutely loved. And it took one misstep for her to fly into a rage. That's not fandom, right. you know, it, it's the same no. thing with star Wars. You know, I, you can love decades worth of movies. You can love the extended universe and all of those novels and all of this and all of that and whatnot. And if the characters behave in such a way that, you know, isn't what you're wishing for, you know, if, if there is one bad movie in the bunch, 
which, by the way, I'm going to go ahead and, on record and say it. I thought Last Jedi was great. I didn't love it, but I thought it was pretty damn mm-hmm. good. Uh, but, you know, that's that one misstep is enough for you to become a, a frothing-at-the-mouth maniac. I just I don't get it. But, and this is kind of icky to do for this particular uh, subject, but to play devil's advocate for a moment. <clears throat> mm-hmm. I've read more than once a creator, you know, a filmmaker, novelist, uh, comic book writer, (laughs) artist, note that once a character or series grows popular enough, it stops being the property of the creator and it really starts to just belong to the fans at that point. And if that's true, shouldn't those fans be passionate about that to that degree, you know, as much as a creator should be? And shouldn't they have a say about those decisions that make them unhappy? Not necessarily have a say in the creative process, but shouldn't they mm-hmm. have, you know, uh, something to say about the end result? Well, you know, my personal feeling is should they be passionate? Absolutely. Uh, I mean, I think, you know, as much as any financial consideration a creator might get, the passion of the fans drives them even more. Should they have a say in what's done? I don't think so. I I think that it's still because once somebody else starts dictating to a creator what path a character or a story is going to take, I don't think it's true anymore. And so even if the path that that story or character takes only works for that creator, I think that's the only way I would want to read it. I don't think I would want to read something that was just tailored to what they thought I wanted. Um, I can go write fan fiction if I want that. I want their version of it and and their feeling of where that character, where that story should go. And then if I like it, if I don't like it, I can at least know that that's what they intended. Yeah. And I mean, that's and again, we're talking about Annie Wilkes. We're talking about her refusing to believe that Misery Chastain is dead simply because she doesn't want her to be, you know. And Right. And and that's, um, you know, when I when I think back, when I compare that to other works of Stephen King, I think about The Dark Tower and the seventh book came out and that ending was there. <laughs> And Which is people brilliant. loved it, and people hated it. I thought it was perfect. Same. And I think if he had given the ending that the people who hated that particular ending, if he had given them the ending they wanted instead of the one that he was led to, I don't think it would have worked. Now, those people might have been happy, but I don't think it would have be something we're still talking about however many years later. Um, that was such a polarizing ending when that came out. and um, But to me, it was like, this feels like what the whole thing was leading to all along. And that's what I want. You know, that's that's what I want. Whether I agree with it or, you know, it satisfies whatever I had in my mind, I know that that's what he intended. That's what King intended. And that, that's that makes it good enough for me. So, you know, you mentioned The Dark Tower, and that is like the one series that we we really think of when it comes to his work. You know, I mean, of course, mm-hmm. all of the books in a way are tied to one another in varying degrees. And yet, you know, I, I guess what I want to ask you is, as a King fan, 
who do you think or what do you think Stephen King's own misery is? You know, is it a particular character? Is it a series like The Dark Tower? Is it the entire horror genre, perhaps? You know, what do you think is uh, is that character that he's maybe wanting to move beyond or wanted to move beyond, much like Paul Sheldon wants to leave Misery Chastain behind? Um, you know, part of me wants to say that I, I think there are times he does not like being pinned down as a horror writer. Um, not that he disrespects horror or is unappreciative of what it uh, has done for him and enabled him to do. Um, and, you know, he's always... Uh, talking about scary movies and scary books that he loves and that kind of thing. But I think he wants to be seen just as a writer, not a horror writer, not a thriller writer, um, but just as a writer. And um, again, that's one of those things that some people will jump on and say, well, what has he got against horror? Because, you know, he doesn't uh, sometimes seems to bristle at being called a horror writer but I don't think he has anything against it. I think he just doesn't want to be limited to just that. And if you read his entire body of work, you can tell that, you know, most, even the most straightforward stories, um, some kind of horror or supernatural elements going to creep in, but you can see him straining against that and trying to say, look, I can, I can do all kinds of stuff, not just this one label. Yeah. And in that case, though, and we're going to jump far ahead here to the ending, but I have to ask in, you know, this one spot, then what do you make of the difference between his own novel, Misery, and uh, the film in regards to uh, the, the what was it, Misery's Return, you know, the, uh, the book mm-hmm. that Annie wanted him to write, you know, in the film, Paul burns the manuscript and, you know, right. partly as a ruse to uh, be able to attack Annie, but also I think just to destroy the, uh, the work that he felt he was forced to write that he didn't want to. Right. And he burns it as a result and partly out of revenge, you know, I think because he knew that Annie loved that manuscript and, uh, you know, she made him burn that personal work of his earlier in the film. But in the book, uh, Paul actually keeps the novel safe. He burns a decoy and he later publishes Misery Returns. And what do you think King was trying to say about himself that the movie sort of undoes? Uh, Hmm. I think, you know, if, if he had written the same ending that, that we saw in the movie where he burns the book, um, I think you could definitely take that as some kind of, you know, message of, look, I want to write other things and you're forcing me to continue to be just a horror writer. And again, I say just a horror writer. I don't mean that in a disparaging way because, you know, we all, we're all here for the, for the love of horror. So don't take me wrong there, but I think it would be, if he had written that ending, that it would be, you know, this because you make me do this, it means nothing to me. And but since he wrote the ending where he kept it, I think it's almost saying, look, just because I try and do other things does not mean this is not special and important to me, too. 
just because I want to write about something other than the same character or the same uh, type of story does not mean that the things that, that brought me here are not just import- as important and special to me as they are to you. I agree. I agree entirely. And, you know, it, it's worth noting, too, that the book ends not with him merely having published that uh, that Misery's Return novel, but it also ends with him writing something wildly different from uh, right. anything that he'd written before. And, you know, he is uh, he's sort of joyful over that. And so can I ask then, do you think Paul Sheldon is essentially meant to be Stephen King? And if so, uh, what do you think fate is trying to tell Paul Sheldon when he is put into his biggest fans' clutches? Hmm. You know, I don't know that that I don't know that fate is trying to tell him anything. I, I think um, I think the message is that you know, as a creator, you put yourself out there, and you're going to be exposed to people who love you, and people who will damage you, and sometimes that's the same person. Um, you know, I've read interviews where King talked about. In his mind, Annie Wilkes is cocaine. And that's who, at the time that he was writing this book, that's who he was a prisoner of, or that's what he was a prisoner of, was cocaine. Um, so I think it's, it's all about, again, um, something or someone who is trying to force you to do things that you don't want to do and trying to find the strength to say, you know, whether you disagree with me or not, I don't owe you anything, you know. And I think that's a hard thing for creators to, um, or I think it's a hard thing for fans to accept, is that Stephen King doesn't owe me anything. Just because I bought every book that he's written, um, he he doesn't owe me anything. George um, and I Martin is not your bitch, in other words. <laughs> right. <laughs> Wasn't that the game and quote, I think, when people said the television show fans started demanding that he write the final two novels? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, so, yeah, I mean, and, but so many people look at it as, hey, I've I've spent money on your books. I've read your books. I've enjoyed your books. So I need you to keep doing what I want you to do. And um, I think that's kind of where Paul Sheldon is. You know, he has made that decision that all of these people love the Misery series, but this is not what I want to do anymore. And so as much as they're going to be upset with me, um, I'm going to I'm going to take that leap. And, you know, a thing that kind of surprised me in the movie uh, and that really struck me for the first time when I was watching it the other night is that when she kind of flips out over him killing misery in the book, he seems surprised by that. And I'm thinking already at this point, you've kind of figured out that something's not right with this woman and you figured out how much she is devoted to you and to this series And so it was kind of shocking to me that he would be surprised 
that she didn't take well <laughs> to, to his decision to kill off the character she loved. Well, I think it's at that point that he realizes that she doesn't love Paul Sheldon. She loves misery. Right. Yeah. And it's, but yeah, uh, yeah. And, and I do love that look of surprise on his face and the way that James Caan plays it in the film where he realizes, you know, I, I think he was probably confident to some degree, you know, he was, uh, she does nothing but give him compliments the entire time with the exception of, uh, you know, his new manuscript in which, uh, you know, God forbid there was swearing and, um, mm-hmm. you know, but I think he probably expected her to walk back in lavishing more praise upon him and to, you know, she's, uh, as much as she is a horrific fan in many regards in that moment, she's a terrible, terrible critic. Right. And maybe, you know, maybe the way things are now is why that took me off guard um, or surprised me that, that he would be caught off guard because it's almost like now you expect the reaction to be negative and you expect a negative reaction to be over the top and too far, as opposed to her just saying, well, it was a wonderful book. I don't like that you killed her at the end, but, you know, at least you gave her a beautiful exit. Um, we don't expect that kind of measured understanding reaction anymore. We expect them to, you know, take a sledgehammer to your ankles. It's <laughs> <laughs> very true. All right. Can I ask then, you know, uh, have you, because it occurred to me with what you were just saying a moment ago that, not in the sense that I, I would even, you know, God, I would certainly never go after creative, you know, physically for any decision that they made ever. I wouldn't so much as tag them in a tweet. But as far as my own personal reaction to the choices they have made as a creator in their career, I, at least one time I can think of, uh, I've been an Annie Wilkes. And I'll, I'll <laughs> explain in a moment, too. But can I ask you, have you ever had a reaction like her a reaction? Not merely, I don't like this choice, or I didn't like this book, or I didn't like this movie, but something along the lines of, my God, what are you doing with your life? Why, why can't you see clearly that you should be doing this instead <laughs> of that? You know, Have you ever had that moment as a fan or even anything closely resembling it? Um, I, I've had moments like that. Uh, I am a, a, a big college football fan. Um, and so this, this is different, obviously, than, than books and movies and things like that. But, but the reactions often are the same. And people get emotionally invested in their teams the way they get emotionally invested in books and, and, and movies. Um, and so I think some of the strongest negative reactions I've had is – you know, a coach calling a play that doesn't work. And me, who played three years of high school football, and that's the extent of my <laughs> uh, experience, am yelling at the television at this man who's <laughs> being paid millions of dollars because he knows when to make decisions like that and when not to. And not only that, but in college, you're depending on a lot of teenagers and young, you know, young adults to be able to flawlessly execute whatever play has been called all that goes out the window and i'm like you idiot why did you call that play i would have done this um you know and so so yeah so the anger is there (laughs) the the overreaction um yeah I've, i've experienced plenty of those and and i like to think that after a minute i calm down and and put everything back into perspective. Um, but, you know, depending on, on how bad the loss was, it might take a day or two. 
I don't, you know, I, I don't think I've ever been angry about, or at least not furious, uh, I should say, about, uh, you know, certain choices that creators can make. And yet, you know, I, I'm a fan of a lot of stuff. I'm a fan of movies, comics, books, and whatnot. Sure. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, there is one particular creator. I, I'll go ahead and say it. I, I adore Clive Barker. I, I think the guy's brilliant. Yeah. I, I oh, I think we're about to. I think we're about to be in the same place. <laughs> well, no. The thing is, is I have never been angry at Barker so much as well. I guess I could say I'm exasperated in a way because up until about 2000, we had, um, you know, he made three films. He had written uh, several volumes of short stories. He'd written these amazing novels. I love his output, and with everything that he would put out there. It was a different world. It was a different take on, you know, an old troper. It was something entirely new. And so, but it was always uniquely him. And I, I also think just as a wordsmith, the guy is brilliant. And then, Oh, there's, there's very few who can touch him. My God. I mean, and you know, as, as a painter, even as an artist, as a, uh, you know, if you look at, uh, that great, uh, compilation, uh, Shadows in Eden, you know, all of those great interviews about his mm-hmm. work. Even the margins are filled with sketches that he's made. And even, you know, the simplest brush strokes that that guy puts on a page is something that you can just stare at and marvel at. And I, again, I think he's a genius. Even reading the stuff that he did as a teenager and a man in his early 20s when he wrote for the stage, I mean, my God. And yet, yeah. You know, you get to 2000, what was it, 2000, 2001, and he begins this series uh, called, is it Aberat? Um, Aberat, uh-huh. I, I know the title. I just don't know how to pronounce it properly. I don't know if it's like Aberat. Yeah, oh, I'm, I'm probably saying it wrong, too. Yeah. <laughs> I say it the same way you do, so we can at least agree on that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, but, you know, and it's, um, you know, I'm a huge fan of The Thief of Always, and in a way, you know, that first volume of Aberat, it felt like a uh, sort of spiritual companion piece to it in that it's, you know, it's meant for kids, uh, I think, but, you know, adults can read it easily as well. And it's filled with these gorgeous illustrations and, you know, but around the same time he had started teasing earlier on, uh, you know, in various online interviews and, you know, in appearances and whatnot that he was going to, uh, you know, write another book of short stories, not unlike the the books of blood. Uh, he wrote that he was going to write a short story and then eventually it was going to be a novella. And then eventually it was going to be this massive unwieldy epic, you know, uh, but he talked for years about right. doing a pinhead versus Harry Damore tale. And, you mm-hmm. know, and then there were rumors that he was going to do uh, a film called, I think American horror. Uh, and then he was going to do a film based on his tortured soul line of toys. And, None of this materialized. The only thing that we've gotten really, uh, with rare exception over the last 18 years, are volumes of Aberat every, you know, five, six, seven years. I don't even know how long it's been since the last volume came out. And again, love the man. Met him in person. Uh, he's just such a nice guy. So gracious with his fans. And I love his work. And I would never you know, uh, try and reach him online to tell him, you know, that I wish he would just get back to doing other stuff instead of painting for years and years, creating illustrations for Aberat because one wonders if he hadn't been caught up in that project, how many other things he might've given us. Now that's me being a greedy fan and a very selfish fan, because if that's what that guy, that guy who's given me you know, all of those short stories and all of those novels and right. all of those films and all of those comics based on his work. You know, if all of a sudden I'm wanting to tell him what he should do with his career, then, you know, that's not, you know, that's me not being a very good fan. And, you know, ultimately it might result in, uh, 
you know, I, I kind of wish the movie had dealt with this in a way, and admittedly, I misery that is, and I don't think there was any way for it to have, but I wonder what Paul Sheldon's own feelings on Misery's return might be, because I think as much as he might not like the earlier novels, or at least, you know, as much as he might want to move beyond them, I wonder if he isn't, if he didn't hate that book that he wrote in a way, yeah. because, you know, when it comes to I think that Paul Sheldon in the movie had reached a point where he hated the series. That's fair. I'm not sure about the book. It's been a long time since I've read, sat down and read the book, but I think the Paul Sheldon in the movie uh, was more than ready to, to move on. I agree. And you know, it's to go back to Barker. I mean, for all of the people, myself included, who were calling for him to finally release that pinhead versus Harry Demore book, you know, when is that going to come out? When is that going to come out? Any interview the man would do, people would always ask about updates on the Scarlet Gospels, which was this big pinhead right. versus Harry Demore story. And you know what? It finally got released back in 2015, and it wasn't that great. You yeah, know, it, yeah, it wasn't, and and it, it felt like somebody and that's what writing I say, by you know. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't know that whatever part of that book is him, and whatever part was, you know, editing and piecing together um, what was out there. It does not feel anything like something from the Books of Blood or the Hellbound Heart or Imagica or any of those early. Uh, those early books it's it's like it's not from the same person and i think he had moved on but he felt compelled to get something out there to satisfy the people who'd been asking him about that for 15 years and so what we got was not great yeah and i think in a way i mean it took me a while to get to this point but i think eventually as a fan i realized you know what? I got the book I deserved. Uh, if I was one of those many fans who was calling for him to put aside what he was genuinely passionate about doing to just deliver another follow-up on an old glory, you know, um, mm -hmm. you know, I kind of got what I deserved as a fan. You know, I, I got something that felt like it was uh, written just for the sake of satisfying fans. And that's not what I want from him. And that's not what any fan should want from the creators they love. Right. And you know, I have a I have a good friend who we disagree quite often on the the Dark Tower series. That um, you know, his take is that the last three books were just rushed out and not very good, and and not a worthy part of that series. And I, I'm the complete opposite. I have there are issues with some of the books, but overall, I feel like the the series went where it needed to go and um you know so so he's like well, I, I i just can't even read the series again because i'm so disappointed in where that brought me but yet he's not sending emails to stephen king going how could you <laughs> you know he's <laughs> you know he's accepted it and and has gone on to to be disgusted with other things but <laughs> he, um <laughs> But, uh, you know, and and he and I can, can discuss them. Um, and I think that's just what's missing is that, you know, if 
he doesn't like them. I, it's not that I'm not going to try and change his mind, but I'm going to understand that, you know, that's his honest and heartfelt opinion. And so I'm going to try and understand why he feels that way about them. And he's going to try and understand why I'm always trying to convince him otherwise. And at the end of the day, we're, we're still civil and still friends with each other. And not a lot of people, that's a lost art these days. It is at least, uh, you know, I, at least online, certainly I hope yeah. maybe not so much in, uh, in real life as it were. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That, that's probably bleaker than I <laughs> intended it to sound. I, I don't, you know, I think, I think there's still a lot of that, but I just think it gets drowned out. And I think the vocal minority has always been, you know, uh, a problem. It just like, you know, I talked about, um, football earlier and things making me angry and when i go to 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 games in person i see the people who can't shake off those frustrations after the game is over and they are on the phones calling radio shows demanding that people be fired and they're uh renting billboards and complaining and they're you know uh on their message boards and on the, on the websites and on social media. Um, and it's like, just let it go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is really not directly impacting your life uh, until you just give it all of this room to just fester and be the only thing that you concentrate on. You know, it's just, um, that's something that I struggle with is like, how do people, get so wound up about something that that it just takes over the the things that they're really personally involved with instead of just the things that they're looking for 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 entertainment yeah yeah i agree and well hey we are uh i just noticed the uh the the clock or whatever i usually try and keep things moving so i gotta ask at this point if we can move on to the film um (laughs) Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I'm sorry. As we haven't host, really talked about the movie that much. No, we haven't. And that's me being a bad host and not noticing that we, uh, you know, this show, this is a show that uh, that is definitely built on tangents or whatever. But uh, but it occurred to me that we hadn't paid much respect to the film itself. So I guess I, I should note that, again, I, I think it's a brilliant movie. But you know what really struck me on rewatching it this time was that for the first half hour or so, the film plays really more as a dark comedy you know, with, uh, right. you know, Khan's reactions, or I guess I should say Paul's reactions to uh, Annie's adoring behavior. You know, it's nice at first, and then you see these sort of wide-eyed, you know, sort of reactions to him, like, my God, what have I gotten myself into? And, uh, <laughs> yes. you know, there's the pig sequence where she brings it in, and she starts oinking at it and oinking at him. And there's that uh, whole portable urinal over uh, the bed bit where she's shaking it about <laughs> animatedly as he's sort of staring, like not wanting to be rude, but at the same time not wanting to get splashed. Um Right. You know, and I, I got to say, I I really appreciated that. You know, the fact that we're 30 minutes into the film before it really reveals itself as a thriller. I appreciate the kind of patience the movie has in doing that. And these days, you know, one one imagines a misery remake would uh, probably open with Annie killing somebody else in a prologue just to get one quick kill in before we ever, you know, we're ever introduced to Paul. Right. Yeah. No, I completely agree, and I think you. I think the fact that it can have such a sudden shift in tone, you have to give two people in particular, Rob Reiner and Kathy Bates, the credit for that. 
you know, there's so much that she does in that movie that if she'd just gone a hair further with it, it would have been impossible to take her seriously. She's right on that but edge. But she just, she's <laughs> right on that edge. Just, you know, the, the scene you're talking about when she comes in with the pig and, and then she's got, she's making the pig ears and she's spinning in a circle and oinking. And I remember seeing the movie in the theaters. If you want to talk about dating yourself, I remember seeing the movie in the theaters <laughs> and nobody laughed at that. Or if they did, it was a very kind of uncomfortable, like, okay, you know, that was weird. I'm not sure where to take that. And, um, and his reaction to that too is just, is just perfect. It's just enough. Um, so yeah, I, I think you're right. I think definitely if there was a remake now, um, we'd have to establish right away that this lady's crazy and she's going to kill somebody or nobody's going to buy it if they wait until 30 minutes to show you that side of her. Yeah, absolutely. It got, you mentioned Kathy Bates too. I mean, uh, well, I mean, what can you say? I mean, she, well, you mentioned she's amazing. I mean, she plays a character who really should be a cartoon and somehow mm -hmm. finds a way to make her believable throughout. And I, I right. mean, hats off to that because who the hell else could have played her, do you think, in that period and could have nailed that character in such a way? Because I, you know, I, I, I actually thought about that earlier. I was like, you know, in 1990, who might have approached that role? I mean, I one imagines there are plenty of, you know, actors who might have approached that role and done a fine job. But really, I mean, she is the one who really makes that character work and who makes her iconic. And I can't imagine anybody else stepping into those shoes, not back then and certainly not for, uh, you know, probably an inevitable remake now. Well, and, and, you know, what I can't imagine is somebody playing that role and then being able to get past that role and have an incredibly varied and successful career and not just be the crazy lady from misery. I mean, there are probably actresses who could have pulled off that one performance, but to then be able to to get past that and to say, look, here's other things that I can do too, and you're not going to just, again, pigeonhole me to one thing, that's what's amazed me about her career. And there are times when I'll see her on things like The Office or American Horror Story, and I don't immediately think of Annie Wilkes. And that's to me is considering how great her performance was. It's amazing to me that that I can see her in other things and not just see her as Annie Wilkes. Yeah, she's absolutely brilliant. Not a, much like you said. I mean, not even simply in this film, but like her entire career. And how fearless must she have been to, you know, play a role that could have easily typecast her and then go on to do other things and then come back into King territory, you know, just a half decade later with the. Uh, Dolores Claiborne. Oh, yeah. Which yeah. I think is an underloved um, gem as well. Exactly. Yeah, so underloved that I didn't even think about it until you mentioned it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah, that's another it's another great adaptation and it's another great job by her and it's nothing again, you can watch that movie and not think about Annie Wilkes once because she's a completely different person and it's a completely different approach that she takes and both of them work and both of them nail i think what king had on the page absolutely and i you know it is crazy to think though that she was able to play a role like that and not have to revisit it i mean of course the movie 
gives her a sort of definitive ending and the book does too even though the book i mean you get the feeling at the time that the book even for what we're told i mean there's the possibility that annie might still be out there or maybe that's just me but you know i i even with something like the silence of the lambs for uh, as popular as it was and uh, critically lauded you know eventually they had to trot hannibal lecter out again you know several times after that and you know given that Misery came out just after the slasher boom in the 80s. One imagines Annie might have made for a fun villain to pop up from time to time in some not-so-great sequels, you know? Maybe right. uh, yeah. <laughs> maybe she'd have targeted a, a Liberace cover artist or something. I don't know. I would have watched it, is all what I'm saying. So Just to see her play that If character. she was in it, I would have given it a shot. If, if Kathy Bates had returned, I would have given it a shot. Um, just like I did all of the Silence of the Lambs sequels. <laughs> same, same. Uh, and plus, I mean, how great is James Caan in this role, too? You know, he's usually known for playing, you know, these sort of tough guys. Uh, mm-hmm. But, I mean, you know, here's a guy who isn't all that proactive, you know, Paul Sheldon. He's in bed for most of the film. He's at the mercy of a maniac. And I wonder if some of the baggage that Khan must have brought to the role then didn't add an extra sort of interesting layer there. You know, we know that if he weren't hobbled by the car wreck and you know, eventually Annie – uh, that he would have been able to handle the situation easily enough. And yet this guy that we know as being a tough guy is now, you know, uh, weakened by his circumstances. And it makes right. it even more dramatic knowing that this guy is uh, just aching to get out of that place and aching to sort of, uh, you know, save himself. And he can't. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the I think one of the best moments of the movie is – he has saved up all the powder from his pills <laughs> and he's orchestrated this candlelit dinner and he's just play for once. He is playing her instead of her playing him and he has played her to perfection. He's got her right there and she knocks that glass of wine over and the look on his face is like a million different things at one time. And it's just, it's just amazing. <laughs> that is a great moment. And, and you just, you just want to go, and pause it and go hug him and say, look, man, I know it looks bad right now, but it's going to get better. <laughs> but, but it's just an amazing little moment from him, the, the look on his face, and then the, the toast to misery, you know, how how perfect that is, too. Oh, absolutely. And his, you know, when he finally does get stronger in the film, like we're, we're sort of cheering him on. He has that almost... Uh, Rocky Philadelphia steps yes. montage yes. <laughs> where he's alternately typing and he's also working out with a typewriter. I mean, that's brilliant. And it's, yeah, it's we, right. we just needed some, they need just needed some eye of the tiger in there and it would have been a whole, <laughs> a whole different movie, but it would have worked. <laughs> I would have been fine with that. Somebody needs but, to yeah, I think, you know, I'm sure that uh, the day after this interview goes, uh, somebody will have that clip up on on Twitter and we'll be able to enjoy it. Um, but, yeah, it's 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 like you said, he's you want to be frustrated because it's like clearly you're James Caan. You should be able you should be out of this house by now. But they do such a good job of showing you just how helpless he is. And like you said, him bringing all the baggage of his previous roles and being able to make you forget all of that and buy him as a guy who really can't do anything to help himself. It's just an amazing as her being able to 
not keep the baggage of that character from that same movie and carry it forward with her. And it's one of the many ways that the movie sort of dashes our expectations, I think. You know, when we see him even for his legs being busted, we think, you know, he's not somebody who's going to let himself be slapped around by a caretaker, as it were, or, you know, abused. And yet, you know, he is. And much like, you know, later in the film, we're just hoping the entire time, the whole movie, that the cops will somehow find his trail, will somehow, you know, get to that doorstep. And the moment they do, in the form of Richard Farnsworth's super lovable sheriff buster once oh, that happens he's so good he, oh he's great he's amazing and everything that guy was brilliant um yeah but he's so just sort of unceremoniously taken out he you know he, he really added nothing to the film and you know it's funny i was thinking about it too i mean he's great in it francis uh is it sternhagen um yeah as his wife slash <laughs> deputy virginia is great but it's such a fun subplot and the characters and performances are great. But other than letting us know that the outside world hasn't forgotten about Paul Sheldon um, and other than that surprising death with Buster, what is it you think mm-hmm. that the subplot adds to the film? You know, I call the film pretty much perfect earlier in a classic and I meant it. But even while I like Buster and his wife in the investigation and I wouldn't want that stuff removed, I also wonder if the film needs it. Well, you know, I think it's good because in, in in a way it shows the time passing. And, and you know, if, if you never leave that house, you kind of lose sense of how long he's been there. And so I think taking you out of that house every now and then kind of makes you go, oh, yeah, you know, the world has moved on and he's still in there. And at least there's one person because you begin to wonder, you know, I'm thinking about his daughter. If I knew this was the town where my father was last uh, seen and he's disappeared, I'm going to that town. And for whatever reason, his daughter doesn't, his agent doesn't. So it, you know, I think with Buster, we get somebody outside to, like you said, to let us know that he hasn't been forgotten. And, but that the longer it goes, the more desperate his situation becomes. Um, gosh, when he goes down the hill and he's just 10 feet from, from the car buried under the snow (laughs) and he turns around and leaves it, it's just like, Oh, you're, you're just right there. You just, and I think he's like that through the whole movie. He's so close to figuring it out and he knows it because he never lets it go. Even when I think most, uh, authority figures in the movie would have said, well, a wolf dragged him out of the car and. You know, and once they found the car, everybody else is ready to accept that and move on with their lives. And he's noticing the dents in the door and saying, no, I still don't, I don't think we know the end of the story here. And he is clever in that regard. But at the same time, too, like I... I got to admit, during his final scene, the walkthrough with the house and Annie, I'm like, man, is your spider sense not tingling right right now? Like, seriously. Uh, yeah, because uh, I'm pretty sure everybody else was watching that movie. Like, <laughs> where did she go? What is she doing? You've got to know she's crazy. And he's just kind of wandering around, just taking a look. And you know he's sharper than that, but uh, but in the end, he's not sharp enough. And talking about, like, great actors, too. We have James Caan. We have Kathy Bates. We have uh, Francis Sternhagen and uh, Richard Farnsworth. 
we also have, as the uh, the movie tells us in the opening credits, a special appearance by Lauren Bacall. And she's fantastic yeah. in the movie for the three minutes that she's in it. And, you know, I she deserves all the praise in the world for that in her entire career. And yet, how the hell does somebody make a special appearance in a film? Isn't that a credit for a television series or something ongoing? You know, isn't every actor making a special appearance in a film? I've never understood credits like that or guest starring in a film. And maybe that's a weird thing yeah, to nitpick, I, but... <laughs> no, I, guest starring is, is one that I've always been like, well, what does that mean? Like, just, you know, either you're the star or you're not. Um, and, and, and she's, you know, she's not a hugely important part of the movie, but she is very good. And like you said, in the three minutes that she's there... Um, and because of who she is, you know, obviously she needs to get the, the billing up there. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a very old fashioned feeling, uh, kind of credit that she gets. Yeah. It always kind of, I tell you, I think you should get more credit. The guy who runs the general store. Yes. I have no idea who the actor is, Me either. but Every time somebody says something about paper, I hear him in my mind going, typing kind, which that was the worst impression ever. You can cut that out if you want to. But that guy, I love that guy. He's in there for 30 seconds. And, you know, he just, he makes an impression. He is the guy who sort of, you know, when you hear that phrase, no small parts in regards to actors and their roles. I mean, that is... That is that guy. He made the most out of his yeah. minute on screen and did a hell of a job mm-hmm. at it. And he felt like, you know, he, in a weird way, in his very sort of like, you know, simple kind of working class way, he felt like one of King's characters really brought to life. You know, the ones that sort of Definitely. fill out and populate the worlds of his uh, his stories. And yeah, yeah, if we can, if we can take a minute here to talk about, you know, you mentioned him earlier, Rob Reiner. He directs yes. the hell out of this film. He had already directed a King adaptation before with uh, Stand By Me, but otherwise he'd been known for comedy. But with this, he directed a movie that's uh, thrilling and nerve-jangling and truly horrific at times. But for the bulk of it, you know, I, I, I think it's a movie that Hitchcock might have appreciated. You know, it's wonderfully suspenseful. Mm-hmm. It's beautifully shot in sort of a very classic measured way and you know they're the dark comedy and suspense are spot on perfect but you know maybe the difference is this movie goes really nasty at times in some surprising ways you know we have that hobbling sequence which um you know having just revisited it i'm sure i'm going to have nightmares about it soon uh (laughs) you know we have the sheriff's death we have the final fight with annie and him sort of cramming the burnt paper into her mouth and like her face smeared with blood and then you know the typewriter and then the 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 what was that an iron pig statue or whatnot you know it's kind of yeah all very jarring compared to how restrained the rest of the film is and one imagines a similar effect might have been gotten from like say reaching psychos halfway point only to have marion crane beheaded on screen but you know it still all works And I think it's a testament yeah. to Reiner's and confidence I, behind the camera that, you know, it works so well. Yeah, and I, and I think restraint is the right word. And, and he, you know, if you talking about the hobbling scene, as bad as it is, you know, he made the choice, first of all, to only show one foot. Yeah. You hear the other one get broken, but you don't see it. You know, because by then, everybody's curled up in the fetal position going, oh, my God, you know, what just happened? You don't need to see it again. 
and I think there's that explosion of violence and then all that tension builds up again until the very end when when he when when Paul finally gets his chance to fight back and um I just think you know if again like we talked about earlier if you start the movie with her you know killing somebody maybe hunting down a critic who didn't like the misery series and and you know killing them and setting up right away with with that kind of a violent start i think you lose the effectiveness that the rest of the movie has i agree i agree and part of that too must come with uh the fact that, you know, not only did you have Rob Reiner directing the hell out of the movie, doing an amazing job of it, but on top of all that, we have a screenplay penned by none other than William Goldman, you know, one of the great right. screenwriters. You know, by that point, there had been some great King adaptations and some not-so-great ones, but by having a guy who was not only a marvelous screenwriter, but a novelist himself, you know, it felt like the project was trying to ensure that this would be one of the very best adaptations of King's work. Yeah, and you can tell that none of the people involved with this felt like they were slumming. No. Like, you know, well, we're we're going to go do our little horror movie, you know, for for kicks, but this isn't what, you know, they put just as much into this as, as any other film they have done, and it shows. Uh, I mean, I, I think it's, um, you know, I think Rob Reiner proved with this movie, this is how you direct suspense, and this is how you build tension. Um you know, I always think about, and I, I, I like the movie The Shining, the, the Kubrick version. I do too. Um, there's a lot of things I like about it. I don't really consider it a straight adaptation, but there's a lot of things I enjoy about it. But there's a scene in there that has always driven me crazy when Wendy is reading his play, and it's all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy over and over and over. And you you just know he's coming. And then right in the middle while she's been overreading it, they show him walking up behind her, and then they cut back to her. And it's like, no, you don't show him until he grabs her on the shoulder, and then everybody can jump and scream. <laughs> and, but, you, but you screwed it up because you show him walking up behind her, and then you cut back to her, and you know he's coming, and all the tension just goes out because you know he's there, and you know what's about to happen. And Rob Reiner doesn't do that. You know, you did not see Annie coming up behind Buster until he'd been shot, and him falling is when you see her. And until then, you were thinking she's probably coming, but you didn't know when or where. Yeah, and one imagines if you had seen her approaching with a gun, that would have sapped all of the suspense out of it. You're right. Uh, sure. Yeah, I. although I, I will say in The Shining's case, too, though, like I... Now that I think about it, and I'm probably wrong, and I'm probably going to have a lot of people listening to this podcast screaming <laughs> at their phones and computers and whatnot, but it occurs to me, you mentioning that, I can't think of a single jump scare in The Shining. Not one. Not like one sort of... Yeah, and I here's think the you're thing, right. I don't think jump scares are... You know, I, I get the feeling that, to some degree people look down on the jump scare because we had mm -hmm. decades full of uh, cats being thrown in the screen or uh, idiot best friends pounding on the windshield of a car when somebody's trying to get it started, you know, something like that. But a really marvelously done jump scare is a thing of art. And, you know, I, I can't think of a single one in The Shining. I can't think of any moment where somebody would have grabbed somebody on the shoulder. But it seemed like Kubrick was more about 
trying to just build dread and sustain it. And I think right. sometimes he does yeah. it marvelously, and then other times, you know, it doesn't it doesn't quite work. But um, but yeah, and I'm, I'm very very surprised that nobody has tried to tackle that movie again, other than the uh, the miniseries in the '90s, which I quite like. I mean, I think uh, the miniseries and the Kubrick movie each have their own strengths and each have their own weaknesses. But uh, with mm-hmm. the sort of resurgence in uh, King, you know, material recently, I it surprises me that we haven't heard anything on that front. Of course, we're getting the Mike Flanagan directed uh, Doctor Sleep, which is the sequel. Right. But uh, you know, I'm, I would be amazed if we don't wind up getting a uh, another adaptation out of that. And that leads me to ask. With King being huge again and several of his stories being revisited recently, do you think the time would be right for a Misery remake? You know, do you think a take on that tale in this time would be more relevant? Uh, or do you think well enough should be sort of left alone? You know, what updating would or could be done, do you think, in this uh, age of social media, you know, and uh, ever more toxic fandom and the like? And if so, if you do think there should be a remake, who the hell do you think could be cast as those characters these days? <laughs> Oh, you know, I, personally, I, I say what leave well enough alone. I, not to say that there's not um, more that can be said, especially um, if you cast this or you set this in the present day. And, you know, Paul Sheldon has, uh, you know, five million Twitter followers. And that's how <laughs> Annie Wilkes finds him. Um, I think there's probably things that could be done with that. But... I think if you watch this movie, you can still relate it to the way things are happening today without having to beat somebody over the head with it. You know, I think you can look at Annie Wilkes and say that is the toxic fandom. And I think it's effective enough to, without having to say she's, you know, a Twitter follower of Paul Sheldon's who goes too far. Um, I think it says everything it needs to say just the way it is. And I think that's what makes it such a good adaptation is because it really is relevant today, even though the internet and social media were not around when this movie, or were just in their very early stages when this movie came out. And yet it still says everything in my mind that needs to be said about the relationship between creators and, and fans. I agree entirely. And I can't think of a better place to leave off than, uh, than that. I think that's just about our time, sir. Before we go, do you have any final parting thoughts on misery? Um, if you haven't seen it, if you haven't watched it in a while, um, if you just want to appreciate how good a Stephen King adaptation can be when the, directors and writers of the film invest as much into the characters as Stephen King did himself. Pick this one up. Uh, Get the Scream Factory version. It's a beautiful print. It looks great. Um, If you just want to see a good, scary movie, uh, you can't go wrong. If you want to see something that's socially relevant commentary, you can't go wrong. Um, and if you just want to see Stephen King done right for the big screen, this is this is a go-to for me. All right, sir. Thank you so much for being on the show and for choosing such a great film to chat about. Now, can I ask, where can folks find you at online, and uh, what can we keep an eye out for from you in the future? Well, I'm not sure I want to give my Twitter handle out after what we've been talking about, <laughs> but uh, 
No, actually, um, uh, Twitter is, is the, the one that I'm most active on. Um, you can find me at Blue Gilland. It's B-L-U-G-I-L-L-I-A-N-D. Um, and uh, talk a lot about stuff that's coming up through Cemetery Dance. Um, talk about books and movies and football and all the things I'm interested in. And so, um, you know, I'd love to have people jump in and, and uh, join in the conversation. Now, I, I got to ask if I can take just a brief moment here at the end. Um, for all of the fans out there listening who you know are tuning into a horror film podcast uh, but might be interested mm-hmm. in you know uh, getting into the more literary side of horror, why should they check out Cemetery Dance? How would, you, uh, how would you pitch that magazine to them? Because it's one that I read and it's one that I have a subscription to, and I, I would definitely like you to sort of shine a light on that for them for a moment if you could. Well, you know, what we try and do with the magazine is we try and uh, – give equal space to established writers uh, as well as new voices. So, um, you know, if you're looking for um, just good stories, um, you know, we don't try and we're not a certain type of horror. We're not a certain, um, you know, again, talking about pigeonholing things, um, you know, we're looking for a good story and then a good scary story. And so I think that's what um, Cemetery Dance does best. And, um, you know, I, I'm a little bit biased. Uh, I've been working with them for uh, four or five years now, and uh, I'm just amazed at uh, the the way Richard Chismar has has built this from nothing and brought it up to to be just such a a gathering point for some of the best talent in in writing horror today. So, um, like I said, it's 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 old school approaches to to horror fiction it's it's new voices um and uh that's that's what i would say if you're just looking for the best um that's what we try and bring you with every issue excellent all right sir thank you very much again i really appreciate your time hey thank you for having me i I really enjoyed it and thanks to all you listeners out there. As always, please make certain to like, subscribe, share, tell all your friends about us, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. That's at Scream Addicts, and I'm at Jinx1981. Until next time, folks, thanks so much, and have a great weekend. I'll be seeing you in all the old familiar places. Excuse me. I don't mean to bother you, but are you Paul Shelby? Yes. I just want to tell you I'm your number one fan. That's very sweet of you.